Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. have some very wonderful members in this church. Some of the sweetest people you'll ever meet anywhere in the world are Bill and Tabitha Hamilton. Bill is a physician and Tabitha, his wife, is a nurse. The story I tell today is not to embarrass them because I don't even know if they're here today. But it's a story that to me is a very wonderful story and very few people know that this happened. Some time ago, Dr. Bill and Tabitha were going home from church and they saw lying beside the road a man who was obviously inebriated. They stopped their car, they got him in the car, they took him home, they took him in the bathroom, put him in the bathtub, stripped his clothes off him, scrubbed him up, sobered him up, then they fed him up, then they clothed him, then they found a place for him to stay. They discovered that this person was a well-known Los Angeles musician who'd come upon hard times. He lost his family, he lost his health, and it is in despair had turned to alcohol. When I heard what Tabitha and Bill had done, I wondered if I would have done that myself. What they did was an illustration of what God did for each one of us, who found us inebriated, drunk in our own pride, in our own sin, laying out there beside the road, covered in filth. The Bible tells us that God stopped beside the road and washed us, clothed us, and fed us, and provided a home for us to live. That's just what Jesus did. Today we're going to have our second in the series, Who is Jesus? I want you please to take your Bible and to come to Luke chapter 15, if you don't mind, and verses 1 down to 7. Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 down to 7 that describes the heart and the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 and onwards. Now the tax collectors and sinners, you notice it's in inverted commas because everybody is a sinner, but it puts it in inverted commas because the Pharisees believed that they were righteous and everybody else was bad. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This was their chief criticism of Jesus. That Jesus had the audacity to talk to sinners and to love sinners and on occasions to go to parties with sinners. And sinners, in inverted commas, loved Jesus. So the Pharisee said, this man receives sinners 
and goes and eats with them. And Jesus said, yes, this is true. And then he told an illustration. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So this is a picture that shows the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus stopped by the wayside. And Jesus went and he picked up the lost soul. And the Bible says he held the lost soul to his heart and took him home and bathed him and fed him and accepted him. The Bible tells me that the cost of redemption was a fearful cost. The Bible tells me that there was a ransom price that had to be paid. And for a little while today, before I talk about evidences of the resurrection, I want to talk about the ransom price that Jesus paid so he could seek and to save the lost. Using the same figure of speech about sheep and a shepherd, Jesus says these words as recorded in John chapter 10. And I'd like you to please come to John chapter 10, verse 14 to 18, dear people. John chapter 10 and verse 14 and verse 18, where Jesus describes himself and his mission. John 10, verse 14 and 18, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And then Jesus said, I want you to notice this verse. I think it is verse 18. Yes, it is verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes it from me. He's speaking about his life. Look at verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my Father. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And Jesus said, in order to save the sheep, it was necessary that the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Therefore, to save us, it cost the Son of God a tremendous amount of suffering. It cost him personally his own life. He said, I lay down my life. No person can take it from me. I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. In this part of the world, in Southern California, among some Christians, there is a theory of the atonement that is called the moral influence theory. Most of you here are not aware of it, but you are aware of its influence because its influence has permeated society, and even our own church. For many, many years, the moral influence theory has been taught at a notable university and has had a devastating impact upon the Christian doctors who have graduated from that center of scholarship. The moral influence theory is not a new idea. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It says this, that Jesus came down to this earth as a real human being, which is true. 
And Jesus came to show us the love of God. And that's true. And the moral influence theory teaches that while Jesus was showing us the character of God, he was murdered, he was crucified. But that, of course, is the devil's lie. Jesus was not a martyr for some splendid cause. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus was a sacrifice. And these dear Christian people who wish to magnify the character of God, and that is great, say, I can forgive my children without demanding punishment, without demanding atonement? Cannot God simply say, I forgive you without demanding a bloody atonement? This idea has permeated many parts of the church, even though it has been condemned by every church council in history. Even the councils of the Church of Rome were perceptive enough to say, this is a heresy from hell. So today, it has permeated Southern California. That Jesus was the Son of God, which is true. That Jesus was a great and a noble reformer. And that Jesus died an awful death, but his death was not an atonement to propitiate the wrath of God. This idea, of course, flies in the face of Scripture. Because the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the Bible nowhere pictures Jesus as being a great martyr. The Bible pictures Jesus dying on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In fact, the Bible calls his horrendous death an atoning sacrifice. I want you please to come in your Bible because more than anything else, I want you to understand the purpose of his death. Would you please come to Romans chapter 3? My friend, you can know everything else in theology, but if you miss out on this, you miss out on everything and possibly eternity. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and onwards. And this brings you to the heart of the book of Romans. And some have said these are the most important words that have ever been written. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the doctrine of, of, the, of the fall of man and the doctrine of universal depravity that every person is a sinner and every person stands under the judgment of God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And the margin says, concerning the atoning sacrifice, the Greek says this, as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sins. The Bible tells me, that the death of Jesus was not only a display of the love of God, and indeed it was the greatest display in the history of the world, of the universe, of the love of God. But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was a display of the justice of God. The Bible tells me that God must be just. 
God cannot just forgive sin and be just. The idea that Jesus came down here as a do-gooder, and while he was doing good, happened to get himself murdered, even by crucifixion, does not stand the truth of the justice of God. Because the justice of God says, the wages of sin is death, and the sinner must die for sin. That is the justice of God. God cannot simply come to the offending sinner and say, I forgive you because I love you. Because it would not be justice. Sin must be punished. And in Jesus, the sin of the world was punished. How else do you explain the manner of his death? A strong young Jewish carpenter in his prime, dead in six hours when a man should live on the cross for a week or more. How do we explain his death? How do we explain the awful depression that came upon his soul that caused him to cry out in sheer agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I tell you, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was not the death I am planning to die. Because it was not the death of a saved man. It was the cry of a lost soul who stands in the white hot presence of the judge of all the earth and who feels the wrath of God against sin. The cross was a manifestation of the love of God. It was also a manifestation of of the holy righteousness of God against him who became sin for us. Did you know that we can ascertain legally from Scripture when you and I died? The very moment of my death is revealed in Holy Scripture. This is not speculation. The Bible categorically makes the statement that you and I can know the moment of our death. As far as the holy law of God is concerned. It is revealed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please, would you be kind enough to turn to the words of the great Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about the atonement, the sacrificial atonement. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 tells me these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, dear people. And verse 14, Paul says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced, say the words, that one died for all. What does it say? Therefore, all died. But if Jesus, my friend, were simply a victim, if Jesus were only a martyr, then this word, these words of the apostle here are irrelevant. The Bible says, one died for all, Therefore, what does it say? All died. Would you like to know legally the moment of your death? Legally the moment of your death. Legally the moment of the end of the world. It was Black Friday. Three o'clock in the afternoon, 31 AD, when the Son of God cried out, My Father, it is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. He was saying that the full justice of the law had been answered in his suffering, in his passion, and in his death. The death of Jesus was unlike any other death in this era, in the history of the world. The supernatural suffering 
The physical pain of the cross in itself was almost unbearable, but there was another pain that none of us should ever have to bear, and that is the pain of the separation of the soul from the eternal God. I would not like to die as my Lord died. I would like to live as he lived, but I would not like to die as he died because he did not die as a Christian with hope and joy in God. He died as a doomed soul. And as he hung upon the cross, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He felt that the separation of his soul from God would mean his annihilation. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was God the Father indifferent? Look at verse 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. My friend, God the Father was not just an angry judge standing off and letting his own son pay the fearful price. The Bible tells me that God the Father was in the Son. And the Father suffered with the Son. When justice demanded that an atonement be made, no angel could make that atonement. No man could make that atonement. Only the God himself who was holy, righteous, good, and who had given a holy law, only a holy God could make the atonement. On the cross, he made a complete sacrificial atonement. Verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. I want to read you a statement from a person whom we honor in this church. Alan White made this statement in the Review and Herald, September 24, 1901. Listen to it. He, Christ, planted the cross between heaven and earth. And when the Father beheld the sacrifice of his Son, he bowed before it in recognition of its perfection. It is enough, he said, the atonement is complete. God the Father kneeled before anything, can you imagine that God the Father would kneel before anything? The eternal self-existent God and judge of all men, the creator of all flesh. The, Bible, uh, the spirit of prophecy tells me that when the Father saw the cross, the Father knelt before the cross and said, it is enough, the atonement is complete. The sacrificial atonement of Jesus on the cross was enough for all of the sins of the world. Down with this doctrine of the moral influence theory that makes sin just a little thing. And that takes away the holiness of the character of God and his righteousness and his justice. And makes the cross just a plaything. People have asked the question, what would have happened if the Jews had not rejected him? What would have happened if the Romans had accepted him? Was that possible? Was that possible? Of course it was possible. No one is forced to sin. The prophecies of the Bible are written because God foresaw these things, not because God said there was no alternative. The Jews did not have to crucify him. The Romans did not have to drive in the Niles. 
that my friend, even if the whole wide world had accepted him with joy and acclamation, there still would have been a death. There still would have been a bleeding lamb. I don't know how it would have been worked out, we're not told. But my friend, there still would have been the cry, My God, my God, because it was necessary for the Son of God to give his own blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And when the Father saw the cross, the Father fell down before the cross and said, It is enough. The atonement is complete. But let me say this to you. A dead Christ embalmed in a tomb is a small comfort to a lonely heart. A dead Christ cannot wash me. He cannot feed me. He cannot comfort me. He cannot clothe me. I need a dead Christ to atone for my sin, but I need a living Christ to lift me up. Thus it is written that Christ must die and on the third day rise from the dead. Now having established the, the purpose of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say this to you in great fairness and in love and in Christian charity. There is a terrible amount of superficial thinking about the death of Jesus and about Jesus. There was no other way I could be saved. And the amazing truth is this, you know, if I had been the only one lost sheep, he would have come down and stopped by the roadside. Mm. That's the great truth. Now I want you to notice certain infallible proofs concerning the resurrection. I consider they are infallible proofs. Number one, eyewitness accounts of contemporary credible witnesses. Nobody here today is ignorant of the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> One would have to be entirely blind, deaf, and dumb, and some other things to miss it. In a trial, the prosecution and the defense are continually searching for credible eyewitnesses. It appears that some of the witnesses have not been as credible as some people would have wished. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles do not say, I don't remember. In a court of law, the judge, the prosecution, and the defense, and the jury are looking for witnesses who can say, I saw this, and under cross-examination, be revealed as people who are truthful and utterly credible. The witness of a credible person is not without great strength. It stands up in a court of law. It is how the legal system operates or is supposed to operate. The writings of the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, were not the writings of con men. They were not people who under the scrutiny of a good defense attorney are found to be shams and liars. 
the testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and hundreds of others has stood the test of time. Bless your heart. These men were so convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead that they were prepared to give not only their lives but their bodies to horrible deaths. It is very, very hard to escape the conclusion that these witnesses were genuine people. Today we talk about the Jesus business. The Jesus business is filled with charlatans who know how to pray beautiful prayers, who know how to say amen, who know how to go through the rituals of religion, but they are in it for one purpose, so they can get money. And if somebody comes along and gives them a better deal for money, then they are gone. Because they're phonies. To be a Christian back in these days was to place one's neck on the chopping block. Every one of these men did. Most of them lost their necks and their heads. Would you please come to Luke 21, Luke 24, thank you. And here you have the testimony of one witness. Luke 24, verse 1 to 7. The man who wrote this is like Bill Hamilton, a doctor. Luke 24, verse 1 and onwards. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then if you notice verse 36 and onwards, 36 to 42, you have the record of an eyewitness. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. My friend, these men, these apostles, were so utterly convinced concerning the authenticity of the resurrection that their lives from this moment onwards became supercharged with the power of God and they were turned from being wimps into mighty preachers of the gospel. And almost all of them died the deaths of martyrs. What, I ask you, did they have to gain by perpetrating upon the world a fantastic hoax? I accept his testimony. I think of Mary Magdalene, a woman who, thank God, was as unprofessionally religious as you can imagine. A woman who was a prostitute and who met Jesus and whose life was changed by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the disciples except John ran away, Mary was at the cross. Did you know this, man? 
You never read in the New Testament a single line of criticism concerning a woman in her relationships to Jesus. We read, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. We read how Judas denied his Lord to the place of selling him out. You read how Peter cursed and swore and said, I don't know the man. But standing at the cross were the women. There is not one line in Holy Scripture in the New Testament where a woman is criticized in her devotion to Christ. And so when the Son of God was writhing in torment and in shame before the world, torn apart, standing at the cross was his mother and some other women and the lady who'd been the town prostitute. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. And on that Sunday morning, when the fog was thick on the ground and it was cold, Mary was at the tomb. The disciples were like scared rabbits. Mary was at the tomb. And she saw a man, and she said to him, knowing that the body was gone, Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. How would she? How would she carry his body? She would find a way. And he said to her, Mary. And she said, Master, ask Mary. Is he risen? What has Mary got to gain by lying about it? Ask Mary. She said, he's risen. He's alive. I've talked to him. He knew how to say my name. I heard him call my name. Ask another man who was a professional, non-religious person, a fisherman. God could not trust the early Christian church to people who were professed religionists because they were so tainted. So he got a bunch of fishermen and a prostitute or two. Ask Peter, the man who knew how to swear like a trooper. Mm -hmm. Under pressure embarrassed by a young girl and said, I don't know the man, and told her the truth because he didn't. If he'd known the man, he would never have denied him. That was the lie that told the truth. I don't know the man, he said. He lied, but he told the truth. He didn't know the man. And then after his resurrection, Jesus met him. And then on another occasion, Peter and the gang got together, and they said, we're going fishing. <laughs> we're going fishing. So they went fishing, worked all that night, didn't catch anything. And in the morning, they saw a man standing on the seashore. And he said, children, have you any fish? And they said, no, we haven't caught any. He said, cast the net on the other side. They cast the net on the other side became filled with great fish, and Peter cried out and he said, It is the Lord. And he threw off his garment and he plunged into the water. And uh, Jesus said to him, Come and have breakfast. That's what he said, have breakfast, come and have breakfast. And Jesus was cooking some fish. <laughs> cooking some fish, a bit of bread. Come and have breakfast. Then he said, Peter, do you love me? He said it three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Ask the outspoken Peter. Ask the outspoken Peter, is he alive? He says, yes, I had breakfast with him. 
Ask St. Paul. It has been said one of the greatest acts in the history of the world was the conversion of St. Paul. A great Jewish theologian. Not a fisherman. But a great theologian. And after the church had been established, God raised up an arch-persecutor of the church, a great mind, perhaps the greatest mind that the world has ever seen beside our Lord's. Ask St. Paul, the rabbi, the bigot, going to Damascus to persecute the Christians. Ask Paul as he goes down the Damascus road and Christ is seen in all his glory. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. Hard for you to kick against the pricks. About half the books of the New Testament were written by St. Paul. He became the world's greatest authority on the doctrine of righteousness by faith and the gospel. Had a very hard life. Forsaken by his family, by his nation, kicked around the Roman Empire, shipwrecked, beaten up so many times that he could not even remember. What did he have to gain by all of this, I ask you, if it was just a lie? It wasn't a lie, it was the truth. Finally beheaded for Christ. Before he died, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to tell you today, the defense and the prosecution in the O.J. Simpson trial will never find witnesses like these. Men with impeccable characteristics, impeccable credentials, men who were ready to die because they believed he'd been raised from the dead. There's another bit of evidence. And the skeptic needs to try to be honest in these things. There's the evidence of the missing body. And there are three theories. The Romans took the body, disposed of it. The Jews took the body and disposed of it. But my friend, those ideas do not hold water because the best way they could have quelched the fire of the early Christian church would have been to produce a dead body. The idea of the resurrection would not have stood up very well in the presence of a dead body. The third idea was that the disciples came by night, those timid rabbits of men, those men who had been trembling in their shoes and were hiding around Jerusalem, and they came by night, overpowered the Roman guard and took the body. And of course, that was the idea that was invented by the Jewish nation. And it is unreasonable, illogical, and for want of a better expression, a pack of lies. No person, no atheist, no unbeliever, no infidel has ever produced the body of Jesus. Not a hair of his head, not a joint of his finger, not one of his bones has been produced. Because there is no body on this earth to be found because the body was resurrected by the power of God and taken to heaven. There is a third piece of evidence which is somewhat subjective. Those first two pieces of evidence are objective truths. But there is a third piece of evidence which is somewhat subjective, but with the other two is compelling proof. There are witnesses today who know that he's alive. 
I have met thousands of them. There are witnesses today whose lives are changed, ennobled, enriched, elevated, because they have personal communion with him. That's why the hymn writer said, he walks with me, he talks with me, he tells me I am his own. There are a million witnesses today who say, through personal experience, he is alive. And so today, I present to you two monumental truths. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He made a complete sacrificial atonement for your sins and mine. And number two, the evidence is in and the evidence says he's alive. He lives. What does it mean to me? It means this, that because he died for me, and because he is alive, he can stop beside the road where you may be lying, bleeding and hurt and filthy and intoxicated. And he can take you and wash you. Wash away all the filth of sin. And he will not leave you naked. He will clothe you as Bill did. Told you a story a moment ago. Bill. Should have been here on time to hear it. But he's a doctor and he has a dispensation probably delivering a baby or something, or just slept in. This Christ not only washes me, but he clothes me with his own clothes, his own righteousness. And then he feeds me so that I'm never hungry again. And then he houses me gives me a place to live now in the church but one day a place with him in paradise I say to you what a God fully God fully man making a complete atonement for our sins raised from the dead as the hymn writer said, Hallelujah. What a Savior. I want you to kneel with me. Please. Our Father, our hearts are overwhelmed today by these great infallible truths. We thank you that Jesus is fully God, fully man, We thank you that on the cross he was not a martyr for some noble cause but he was a sacrifice for sin. We thank you that on the cross he made a complete sacrificial atonement for the sin of the world and that God the Father when he stood before the sacrifice the almighty God bowed low and cried out it is enough. The atonement is complete. Our Father, we thank you that all our sins have been borne and the penalty has been paid. 
And it is true. If we will but believe it and accept it in true faith. Our Father, we thank you today that he who made the atonement is not sleeping in some faraway tomb, embalmed, preserved, but that he is risen from the dead. We thank you that our Christ is alive forevermore. Amen. We thank you today that because he's alive and because he paid the price, he can stop beside the roadside where we may be lying, inebriated and bruised and broken and filthy, and he will stop and lift us up and wash us white as snow. We thank you that all sins are forgiven when we come to him in true faith. But the past is washed away. We thank you, our Father. And we thank you that after he washes us, he puts on a new robe, a robe of righteousness, and says, I don't see your past anymore. I only see righteousness and holiness and goodness. And this is a gift. Then we thank you that he feeds us so that we're never hungry again. Then he gives us a place, a home, a place where we can stay in this life. And then one day, a place eternal in the heavens, a mansion in glory. Our Father, today we want to open our hearts to you and as you stop and see us there beside the road, we want you to lift us up. We want you to wash us and clothe us and feed us today, please. As we're praying in the church today on our knees with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in the presence of the Lord Jesus, how many today would raise a hand and say, I want to be washed today. I want to be clothed today. I want to be fed today. I want to be put into a home today. I want to be part of the kingdom of God today. Lift up your hand and say, Lord Jesus, today, make this a reality in my experience today. And I'm asking you, God, to stop now. Wash me. Clothe me. Feed me. House me. Save me. Thank you, dear Father in heaven that you've made it all possible and we accept it today and we bless you, we thank you, we worship you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen.